Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course, everything in between. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit this week. I'm getting over a bit of a cold. So that's why there wasn't an episode earlier on uh, Friday, when there usually is one. And my throat is a little bit uh, choppy, so you may hear a little bit of a voice cracking like I'm 15 again. But hopefully it won't be too bad. I'll try to edit out the best I can. But uh, you may hear some struggling through some words and uh, long phrases like this one. So, yeah. Anyway, today we're going to go to some true crime with a bit of a supernatural aspect to it, I guess you could say. Supernatural in the spooky, scary sense. Not anything otherworldly, I don't think. But today we're going to be looking at the Circleville Letters. Now, these are some letters that were sent to some people, and they were very ominous. Now, there's a show on Netflix about the 657 Boulevard Watcher letters, and that's a big thing right now. So, I thought I'd look for something similar, but not quite that, because it's everywhere. So, this one's a little bit different, and it's a little bit spookier, in my opinion. Anyway, so as I said, this is the Circleville Mystery Letters, and this took place in 1983. So, let's just jump right into it, shall we? Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, I don't know about you, but something about somebody watching your house, stalking you, and knowing your every move is pretty fucking terrifying. I have to say, I can't think of anything more chilling. It's like that Dane Cook joke a long, long time ago. If you really want to get back at somebody, break into their house and steal nothing, but just take, like, the batteries out of the TV remote or something. And they'll be like, what the fuck is going on? Why is this happening? Blah. And they go mental because of it. That's kind of what happens here. Now, it was on the afternoon of February 7th, 1983, and Mary Gillespie, a school bus driver for the West Falls School District in Circleville, Ohio, had just dropped off one group of children and was headed to pick up another at Monroe Elementary School when she spotted the sign. It had been placed along her bus route at the intersection of Sosito and Darby Road and Five Points Pike. And I'm just going to take a little interlude here to tell you that it is windy as fuck. And if you hear any howling, it's literally the window beside me. It is like tornado levels wind. It's been crazy the past few weeks or a few days. I don't know. I've lost all track of time. Anyway, let's just get back to this. I just want to let you know that if you hear any woo, it's not a ghost. It's not sound effects. It's literally the wind in my window. Anyway, Gillespie parked the bus, exited, and approached the handwritten sign, which was made an obscene remark about her young daughter, Tracy. Gillespie had been receiving such harassment for years, typically via letters in the mail, but she knew the sign was the work of the same anonymous perpetrator. In the letters, the person had warned her that the message would be posted publicly. Gillespie, annoyed, picked up the sign and the peculiar post used to hold it in, taking the entire setup back on the bus and going about her day. That evening, when she inspected the sign a little more closely, she opened a small container on the post. Inside was a 25 caliber handgun. Now, if that's not terrifying, I don't know what is. Soon, Gillespie would learn that the person who had spent years harassing her had intended for her to rip the sign down in anger, and when she did, the gun was rigged to go off. But she kept a cool head and just took it down naturally, and I guess the trigger, whatever mechanism was used, did not go off, thankfully for her. 
Now, the Circleville population is about 14,000 people, so it's a very small little place. One of those places where everybody knows everybody, I would imagine. And it's not a town, like I said, that can harbor many secrets. Roughly 25 miles south of Columbus, it's home to manufacturing companies, Ohio Christian University, and a water tower painted like a pumpkin. The town has a sense of neighborly intimacy, a closeness that Circleville letter writer made a target of scorn. In the summer of 1976, Mary Gillespie received a letter postmarked in Columbus that had no signature and no return address. It assured her that Mary was having an affair with the Westfall School District Superintendent, Gordon Massey, and it warned her to stop. Quote, I know where you live, read one of the warnings. I've been observing your house and know you have children, and this is no joke. Please take it seriously. Soon, her husband Ron began receiving letters too, demanding that he go to the school board with the information or risk being killed. So things ramped up very quickly. Mary assured Ron that the allegation was false. They decided to remain silent on the matter, and they hoped that this silence would lead to whoever doing this would get bored and stop sending letters. Sadly, the person didn't, and within weeks, more threats arrived, this time cautioning that if Mary didn't end the affair, it would be disclosed on CB radio and billboard ads. It was at that point that Gillespie and her husband decided to disclose their harassment to their family. They told Karen, Ron's sister, and her husband Paul Freshour, an employee at the local Anheuser-Busch plant, who was once a prison guard and had survived a harrowing 30-hour ordeal as a hostage when inmates briefly took over the Ohio State Penitentiary in August of 1968. Speaking with the Fresh Hours, Mary said that she had a suspect in mind, David Longberry, a bus driver who had once made a pass at her. Maybe she thought Longberry was feeling jilted and wanted to taunt her, a revenge, broken heart, star-crossed lovers, all that kind of nonsense. It was agreed that Paul would write a letter to Longberry to demonstrate that the Gillespies knew what he was doing and to stop immediately. And for a little while that worked. The letters stopped, and then the sign appeared. To their dismay, Mary and Ron Gillespie began seeing signs posted around town that made claims that Gordon Massey, the superintendent, was romantically involved with the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter, Tracy. Now we're getting serious. These are very serious allegations, and it's very just disconcerting all around. Reportedly, Ron drove around town early in the morning to tear the signs down before Tracy could see them. The harassment campaign no doubt angered Ron, and on August 19, 1977, he received a phone call at their home. The caller declared he was observing the Gillespie's house and that he knew what Ron's truck looked like. In a fit of furious rage, Ron told his family, and he thought he recognized the voice of the caller. So he raced out the door with the intention of confronting him. He brought along a gun. Moments later, a shot was indeed fired, but no perpetrator was hurt. Instead, it was Ron Gillespie who lay dead behind the wheel of his truck. No one in sight. Stalking turns to letters, turns to allegations, turns to murder. Everything ramped up very quickly in this case, even if it was spread out over the course of a few years, doesn't matter. You go from letters to murder in a beat of a heart. It's a crazy scenario. Now, authorities naturally got involved, including Pickaway County Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, and they failed to find any bullet casing on the scene. Ron Gillespie had been drinking. His blood alcohol content was 0.16, which was, of course, twice the legal limit. It's always twice the legal limit. It's never anything but twice the legal limit in cases like this, even though it's not his fault. He probably shouldn't have gotten behind the wheel of his car, but point remains, he was drunk, he had a gun. Did he shoot himself? Probably not, but the possibility is still there. Absent of any hard evidence to the contrary, Radcliffe concluded that Ron had driven himself into a tree by accident. And I guess the gun went off, and there we go. But why was there no bullet casing? That's the question. Somebody cleaned up this crime scene. 
Now, of course, the relatives found that very hard to accept, asserting that Ron wasn't known to be a heavy drinker, but police didn't seem convinced anyone else had anything to do with this. Radcliffe told Paul Freshour that one person of interest, whom he didn't name, was questioned, but had passed a polygraph test, which means nothing. Any psychopath can pass a polygraph test, and I would imagine that whoever is doing this is some kind of psychotic. After the murder, or supposed murder, or what the police are claiming to be a accident, I don't know, more letters began arriving, this time to other residents in and around Circleville that presented the idea that Radcliffe was engaged in some kind of cover-up regarding Ron's death, and that Mary and Gordon Massey were responsible for killing him. Ron's death wasn't the only change in Mary's life. Paul and Karen Freshour were also divorcing, and Mary allowed Karen to move into a trailer on Mary's property. At some point after Ron's death, Mary also admitted that she actually had an affair with Massey, but it had started after the letters began arriving, not before. Self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe? Maybe it gave her the idea. Maybe it was Ron sending these letters, trying to oust his wife. Maybe it was indeed Massey sending the letters, trying to get the idea in Mary's head. I guess we'll never really know. Well, we might know one day. Maybe we'll know at the end of this story. It's all a mystery, remember? Anyway, it was a strange admission, but not quite as strange as what happened along her bus route on February 7th, 1983. We're getting to that sign incident. After Mary confiscated the booby trap sign that had seemingly been set up to fire a gun once she pulled the message down, Radcliffe and the authorities started trying to trace ownership of the firearm. The serial number had been filed off, but they were able to secure enough to identify who it belonged to. In doing so, it seemed assured that the owner of the weapon would also be the person behind the letters. The gun belonged to Paul Freshour. Both Mary Gillespie and the police were stumped. Why Paul? Why him? Through the investigation and through his eventual criminal trial, no one could explain exactly what motivated Freshour to threaten his in-laws. And while Freshour maintained his innocence, the evidence against him was very hard to ignore. It was his gun, for Christ's sake. Literally a smoking gun in their hand. But guns can be stolen. But why was the serial number filed off? That could just be a really good cover-up. If you're going to blame somebody, you don't want to lead it back to them so concretely. You want it to maybe have some allure, like they did it to back themselves up and to cover their own tracks. I'd imagine if you're going to commit a crime and frame somebody, you would have to commit it as if you were that person committing the crime. Cover it up as best you can. Leave a shred of evidence. Nothing serious, nothing obvious like leaving the serial number on a gun. File it down. But don't file it down enough that they can't get any readings from it. Eh, seems like you're trying to cover your tracks, you just fucked up. That's what's going on here. I don't know for sure, though. So let's just continue on with the story. After being released on a $50,000 bond, Freshour voluntarily checked himself into a mental health center at Riverside Hospital because he wanted to be examined, and possibly to help with the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. However, that plea was later dropped. Later, a co-worker at Anheuser Busch named Wesley Wells testified that Freshour had purchased the gun from him for 35 bucks. While personnel records showed that Freshour had taken a day off from work on February 7th, the same day Mary discovered the booby trap, even more compelling was the fact that the handwritten samples taken from Freshour's employee file were, according to handwriting experts, a match for 391 of the letters and 103 postcards sent to the Gillespies and other local residences. In total, over a thousand letters had been sent across southern Ohio, many of them complaining of political corruption, some containing arsenic, which is a poison, which is very serious. Freshour admitted he bought the gun, but didn't know what happened to it. 
He also said that Radcliffe had simply asked him to try to copy samples of the offending letters, which resulted in a handwriting match. So in other words, they said, hey, trace this, and it'll come back as yours. They didn't say that. They said, oh, we'll just eliminate you by you tracing these copies or trying to mimic it as best you can, which seems plausible. And I mean, police have done weird things to get a confession. Anywho, Freshour was indicted by a grand jury in March of 1983 and set for trial in October of 1983. It did last one week. The jury needed just two and a half hours to return a verdict of guilty on the charge of attempted murder using a firearm that was either in Fishauer's possession or under his control. He was not formally charged with any writing of the letters, though 39 were admitted into evidence. Judge William Ammer sentenced him to 7 to 25 years in prison, and an additional three for controlling a firearm during the offense. However, you'd think everything would be all wrapped up by now, right? But the Circleville mystery doesn't end there. Even as Freshour was imprisoned, sometimes, even in solitary confinement, letters continued to come to residents. Even Freshour received one, taunting him after a parole hearing had concluded without allowing him early release. Quote, Now when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set him up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? Freshour was eventually paroled in 1994 and continued to insist he had nothing to do with the letters. If he was guilty, his motivations for writing them remain puzzling. One theory is that he felt he was demonstrating loyalty to his wife Karen, whose brother Ron may have known about Mary's affair. The affair that Mary denied took place until after Ron's death. And at that point, I guess it really wouldn't be an affair anyway. But the fact that she did sleep with this Massey guy, well, I mean, the seeds were planted before he died. It must have been. But that's not what this is about. We're not going to get into that. We're just going to continue looking at these letters. Despite the shit that was going on in Mary's life, the Fishauer marriage seemed strained as well. Divorce filings in Columbus included allegations made by Karen that Paul was physically abusive and prone to a violent temper. Perhaps Karen, spiteful over the divorce that ended with Paul receiving custody of their kids, wanted to frame him. Though it's not clear why she would risk killing Mary Gillespie in the process. That's her sister. It doesn't seem logical. But hey, in these things, there is very little logic to be had. But that's not always the case. There was one lead that police were criticized for failing to follow up on. According to another bus driver working the day Mary discovered the booby trap, a yellow El Camino was parked at the intersection, and a man who looked nothing like Fresh Hour was standing nearby, pretending to urinate. The man was never identified. How do they know he was pretending? Did they get a close-up? That's interesting. Fresh Hour died in 2012, and no new evidence has come to light in the Circleville letters case. If it was indeed Fresh Hour, he certainly abandoned the practice once he received a prison sentence. If there were copycats or accomplices, they too stopped. The letters ended up stopping in the 1990s. In 2021, the CBS program 48 Hours asked former FBI profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole and a forensics document expert Beverly East to examine the letters. O'Toole said that she didn't think Fresh Hour was the culprit based on the impression she got of a controlling, vindictive letter writer, traits that Fresh Hour's relatives insist don't fit him. But East pointed to the letter G, which resembled the number six in many of these Circleville letters, as well as Fresh Hour's own handwriting, a telling and perhaps incriminating detail. East believes Fresh Hour wrote the letters. The show also identified Fresh Hour's fingerprints in some of the letters that were sent while he was in prison, a seeming contradiction no one is able to explain. As far as the police are concerned, this is a closed case. In a 1978 article in the Dayton Daily News, commemorating the 10th anniversary of the Ohio State Penitentiary Riots, Freshour was asked if he suffered any lingering emotional damage from being held captive. He claimed he didn't, though P. 
people often asked him if he had become an alcoholic or saw a psychiatrist or had any lasting effects. There's nothing wrong with Paul Freshour, nothing that he could point out. Quote, I still have nightmares every once in a while, Freshour said. I dream about what might have been and what was, but considering it all, I feel I'm lucky that I am as well adjusted as I am, considering how close I came to death. And that's all we have on this. Letters are a weird one. Unless you lick the envelope, there's not going to be a whole lot of DNA evidence. And the fact that he had fingerprints on some of the letters that were sent while he was in prison kind of suggests maybe he had them pre-sent, or they were left with a friend to be sent after he was put away. It could be anything. It could be... who knows? I don't know. When it comes to mail and letters and stalking cases, it's very hard to prove anything unless you're caught red-handed. Now, does Paul Freshour seem like the obvious suspect? Yeah, he does. And he was convicted. Does that mean he was guilty? Not necessarily. There are plenty of cases of false imprisonment and stuff like that. People are found guilty all the time who didn't actually do what they were charged with. This just seems like a weird one. Like the Watcher case in 2014 at 657 Boulevard. It's very similar, but different in its own right. This was personal. The other one didn't seem personal. To me, this is a very interesting one, and one I don't think we're ever going to get the answers to, especially since Paul Freshour died almost, well, more than 10 years ago now. Or about 10 years ago, anyway. We're almost in 2023, and he died in 2012. Math is hard, but I got that one down. So who do you think is responsible for this? Was it Paul Freshour? Is it the obvious choice? Is it the simplest answer is always the right one? Or is it something a little more devious? Was it some people just fucking around and it got out of hand? Was it somebody involved in the affair or the supposed affair? Was it another family member? Who knows? Who knows? Was it the bus driver who got rejected? I think he was overlooked a little bit too much. Regardless, this is one of those mysteries that will probably never be solved. But you can always try and find out your own information. Come to a conclusion on your own and see where that takes you. But that's going to do it for me. My name is Casey and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a 5-star rating on Spotify. You can do so on your mobile app. Any 5-star ratings will be shouted out on the show if you let me know that you did it, that is. So that's it for this week. Until next time.